welcome to this week's edition of the Taught by Grace podcast. We will explore God's Word to learn how we can live by God's grace and for His glory. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. Here's your host, Noah Hooper. This week we return to James 2 verses 14 through 26 to finish what we began last time. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, I'd encourage you to do so as this episode builds on the foundation laid in that episode. We took the exit ramp after verse 17, so before we hop back onto the interstate of this passage, I'd like to bring your attention to what it is all about. The main argument of this passage is very clear. Faith without works is dead. Verses 17, 20, and 26 revealed that this is the crux of James' argument. By our works, we show the reality and growth of our faith. Herein lies the heart of James' argument. If you have faith, then your life should be the expression of that faith. Douglas Moo's quote on James' argument is once again helpful. He said, It is absolutely vital to understand The main point of this argument expressed three times is not that works must be added to faith, but that genuine faith includes works, end quote. James is arguing for a faith that works because true faith does work. This is seen in his logical argument in verses 15 through 17. Just as it makes sense for a person who sees a starving, freezing person to buy them a meal and a coat, It makes sense for someone who claims to believe in Jesus to live like someone who believes in Jesus. In other words, we prove that we really believe what we say we believe through our works. So this is what James gets at in verses 18 through 26, which will be the focus of this episode. In verse 18, he says this, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works. And I will show thee my faith by my works. He invites the man who claims faith without works to the other side of the table and says, All right, prove your faith without your works. But that man wouldn't be able to prove his faith without his works. So James says, I'll prove my faith by my works. He invites the man to provide evidence of his faith without works. And James said that he would give evidence to his faith by his works. You can believe whatever you want to believe, but unless that belief shapes your actions, there is no way to prove that you actually believe it. You may say that you believe a parachute will open when you jump out of a plane, but until you jump out and pull the cord, there is no way to prove that you actually believe it is true. Likewise, we may be thoroughly Christian in what we believe, but we must also be thoroughly Christian in how we live. We must be orthodox. We must be biblical in our beliefs. If you don't believe that God's word is inspired by God and without error, that salvation is by grace through faith alone, or that Jesus is God in the flesh, it doesn't matter how you live. If you are wrong in what you believe, you can live the most moral life and you will still die and go to hell. But if you do believe right, If you do believe in Jesus, the only way to salvation, then our lives ought to align with the faith we possess. James isn't calling these believers in us today to more. He's calling us to more than orthodox beliefs, but orthodox lives. He didn't want them just to believe, but to live in accordance with that belief. 
But the man of verse 14 says, I believe in God. Isn't that enough? To which James replied like this in verse 19. Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. This man's belief is biblical. He believes in God and he believes that there is one God. And this is very good. James commends this man for that faith. That's good you believe in one God, but devils do too. Those demons who fell with Satan are very orthodox in their belief. They know that there is one God. They know that he is triune. They have a better grasp on Bible doctrines than many Christians sitting in the pews, but they are damned. Their belief in God doesn't save them. They don't lovingly bow before him. They tremble. They shudder at his name. A chill runs up their spine. They know that there is one God, but they also know that one day that God will judge them and cast them into the lake of fire for eternity. Even the demons have the kind of faith that James is calling out, which opens our eyes to that faith he is calling out here. It is the kind of faith that may simply believe in God. It gives mental assent to the reality that there is a God, but this is not the kind of faith that rests fully and completely upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work of redemption. You see, when James says, you believe, he's calling out the man who says, oh, I believe in God, I'm good. But just mere belief in God isn't enough. We believe in Jesus. We believe in his finished work. Demons can believe in God, but those going to heaven believe in Jesus as the only way for salvation. And this belief in him will move us to action. It is faith and action. So then he continues to verse number 20. He says, but wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead. He's saying you're shallow. You're empty. Do you want to know that the faith that you claim is dead? He says, open your eyes. Can't you see that faith without works, the faith that you claim to have is utterly worthless. But perhaps the man hasn't opened his eyes yet. Perhaps you haven't seen it yet. So James continues to some Old Testament examples to prove the argument that he is making more. He takes us to the father of the Jews, Abraham, and a prostitute Gentile, Rahab. In verses 21 through 24, we are brought to Abraham. James takes his readers on a journey back to Mount Moriah in Genesis 22, when Abraham laid Isaac on the altar and was fully prepared to sacrifice his son. God commanded Abraham to ascend the mountain and sacrifice Isaac, the son of promise. All of God's promises to Abraham were bound up in Isaac, but God tested Abraham's faith by sending him up that mountain, commanding him to kill Isaac as a sacrifice. And he was going to do it because Hebrews 11 teaches that he believed God could raise Isaac from the dead. But thankfully, God did not allow Abraham to go through with it. A voice pierced the heavens in Genesis 22, verses 11 and 12, saying, And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. Now we haven't dove into 
all that occurred on that event. But we need to answer the question, what was the point of this all? God was testing Abraham's faith. He was maturing his faith. He had brought him along the journey of faith with test after test, progressively getting more difficult until this pinnacle test when God commanded him to lay the son of promise down on the altar, and Abraham did. Here's the point. Abraham could have loved and trusted in the son of promise more than the God who promised Isaac. Therefore, God brought him up, Mount Moriah, to bring his faith to the place where he had to lay down his greatest earthly treasure and declare that his faith was in God alone. He was testing his faith. And to this event, James said this in verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he'd offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Whoa, did James just say that Abraham was justified by works when he did this? Now, we know that's not what James was meaning there, that he was not saved by this. Scripture clearly teaches that Abraham was justified or declared righteous before God in Genesis 15, 6, when he did what? It says in there, and he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Do you know how Abraham was declared righteous before God? When he heard what God said and believed in God. Paul goes into even more detail about this in Romans 4. And if there is anyone in Scripture as a model for being justified before God through faith alone, it's Abraham. So then, what was the Holy Spirit inspiring James to get at here with this statement about him being justified by works? The rest of the test provides the answer. It was about the faith that began far earlier in Abraham's life being grown and brought to a place of greater maturity. Verse 22 says, Seest thou how faith wrought with his works. And by works was faith made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Did you catch verse 22? It was his faith wrought with his works, and through those his faith was made perfect or mature. In other words, the saving faith that Abraham already possessed worked through him and moved him to works, displaying that his faith was true and had grown. When you and I were born again, we came to God by grace through faith in Jesus for salvation. And that faith was all that was needed for salvation. That was all that was needed. When you believed in Jesus at that very moment, you were placed in Christ and you are seated in heavenly places. You are as good as there. It was the same for Abraham. That faith, however, didn't remain in that place. It had to grow. And the ultimate declaration of Abraham's faith was seen in the offering of Isaac. It showed that his faith had grown. As R. Ken Hughes pointed out, genuine faith results in works. The authenticity of Abraham's faith Abraham's Genesis 15:6 experience of faith meant an inevitable outworking in life, which all would see, for example, in the offering of his only son. End quote. Herein lies an important truth to be noted as well. Abraham's faith and works increased throughout his life. As his faith grew, his works did. He acted on his faith in God through smaller means before he reached the pinnacle on Mount Moriah. Likewise, our faith 
doesn't have the same works the whole time either. It is constantly growing in works as God increases our faith in him. When Abraham laid Isaac on the altar on Mount Moriah, it was the expression of his faith. His faith moved him to action. And that is the kind of faith that James is arguing for here. And that is the kind of faith that you and I must have. If our faith does nothing more than to say, oh, I believe in God. I go to church. I do all those things. But it doesn't move us to any obedience or a desire for obedience. Then our faith is more like the faith of devils than it is like the faith that is taught in Scripture. You see, when James argues for justification by works, he's not talking about our works saving us, but that our works are the display of a faith that believes in Jesus for salvation. God saw Abraham's works and said, I am pleased with you. And when others see our works, they see that our faith is true. So James now concludes this section with a more succinct Old Testament example Rahab in verse 25. Likewise, also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers and had them sent, had sent them out another way. If you're familiar with Joshua 2, you know how the spies came into Jericho and they met Rahab and she received them into her house. And when they left, she could have sent them to an imminent death, but she didn't. Instead, she believed the message they brought that judgment was coming, but they told her, if you hang the scarlet thread out your house, you will be saved and whoever is in your house with you. And she sent them out a different way because of her faith. She believed and therefore she acted upon that belief. And that is what the brief illustration of Rahab is about here. Her faith moved her to action. So then we are brought to the final conclusion of this passage, which been, has been the conclusion throughout it all. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Faith that doesn't produce works is just as useful as a corpse. There is no spirit in that body. It's dead. And James is absolutely clear. Faith without works is just like a body in the morgue. It may have an appearance of life, but there is no spirit within it that gives life to the body. So then I ask you, what kind of faith do you have? You may have a completely dead faith that may believe that there is a God and that he is out there, but you have not trusted in Jesus, and therefore you will not have any works at all. And even if you do have some morality or some appearance of goodness, that does not save. You must rest fully and completely upon Jesus alone for salvation. That is where you must begin. But this passage, however, is obviously directed towards believers. We who are in Jesus, we who have believed in Jesus. And the point is this, if you and I claim the faith of Christ, it should move us to action. True faith moves to action, just as it 
a person seeing a person in need should move you to do something for them just as abraham laying on isaac on the altar showed that his faith was true just as rahab sending the messengers another way showed that she believed what they said so you and i must express our faith through our works if we do not even if we are truly saved if we do not live by expressing our faith through our works it's pointless it's worthless. So you and I, we must be biblical in what we believe, but we must also be biblical in how we live. That's what James is getting at. He's calling these believers not merely to give mental assent to the truths of Scripture, but to let the truths of Scripture come to bear upon their lives so that they live in a manner that glorifies God. Yes, let us believe what glorifies God, but let us live in a manner that glorifies God as well. And that manner is faith in action. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of the Taught by Grace podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you will consider subscribing and leaving a review on whatever podcast platform you listen to it on. So I hope you will join me next week on the next edition of the Taught by Grace podcast.